0: Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Margaret Denyer tells us about the changing lives of women over the past few centuries.
1: One of the things that interests me most in history is the effect that events, both local and global, had on the lives of individuals. For this talk, I'm going to consider how this affected women and girls. I'm also particularly interested in the possessions and ephemera that survive. It was difficult to know how far to go back and I decided to use pre-agricultural revolution as a baseline. This situation changed with advances in agricultural methods and equipment and a requirement for greater productivity. This led to the start of the Enclosure Acts from as early as the 17th century with some informal arrangements before then, gaining pace in the 18th during the Georgian period before really accelerating as a result of the General Enclosure Act of 1801. Therefore, the conditions described as my baseline would start changing around the 17th century, but would continue in different areas of the country, merging into the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and the expansion of towns during much of the Victorian era. I will look at changes wrought by these revolutions, steam power, the increase of the empire, legislation and two world wars in roughly chronological order, although this isn't always quite possible, with just a mention of more recent events. I will restrict myself to the lives of women in the British Isles. I'll look at what they wore and how this affected, what they could do, what they used and in changes in what they were able to do, in particular outside the home. This is by no means an exhaustive survey, as many areas could be a talk in themselves. I followed areas that particularly interest me. I hope that you find some interesting too. From my reading of a range of books and articles, the main expectation of women sadly during much of this time appeared to have been to produce children and to look after households at different times they might be encouraged by governments to produce agricultural workers or soldiers for individual families sons were needed to carry on farms and businesses in the case of the aristocracy and even royalty, they were required to produce heirs, male heirs. The age at which women had their first child varied over the centuries and was surprisingly high at times. I found lots of statistics concerning this, but haven't got time to include them here. Clothing, particularly for the upper classes, was very restrictive during a lot of this time, with the body being corseted into whatever shape was the fashion of the era. Some women were well known for achievements in their lifetimes, but were rather forgotten about as societies changed. Female artists are one example of this. So, starting at our baseline, the majority of people lived in the countryside, with much of the land being owned by a very small minority and many people didn't travel far from their homes. The estates had villages in which workers lived and were largely self-sufficient. The women would have worked on the land, they'd have grown their own food and usually raised a few animals on the common land. They would have spun, woven and made clothes for all the family and possibly items such as lace for sale in local markets. A girl born into this situation would help her mother with all her tasks and help look after younger siblings. Some would go into service. It would have been a very hard life, but they would probably have had better food than in the villages. Some would stay in service for many years, but others saved their wages for a dowry so that they could get married. In the town some women would be working in various craft and other guilds or maybe in service or in merchants. A girl born into the upper class or aristocracy would learn how to manage the household and servants. She would be educated at home by a governess. Some girls shared a tutor with brothers until the latter went off to school And some accessed their father's library to further their education. They'd be dependent on the father until such time as she married, often to someone with adjacent lands. She'd then run the household and hopefully provide male heirs. If she didn't marry, and if her father died, then she'd usually be supported by a male relative or failing that, possibly become a governess. Some wanted more than this life, however, and we'll first of all look at the achievements of some of these in the 17th and 18th century and just into the 19th. Historian John Miller claims that Lady Elizabeth Wilbraham was the first known woman architect... In the 17th century, she went on an extended honeymoon studying architecture, and according to him, designed Wooden Park, which is where the family lived, and lots of others. He also says that she knew and may have heavily influenced, if not actually been at least partly responsible for many buildings accredited to Christopher Wren. This is quite contentious, but an interesting story. Nonetheless. Letters written by one Hester Chapone to her niece, published after her death. I looked her up and found a local connection that she was a friend of Gilbert White. Hester's book stood out at the time as it focused on rational understanding. She advised girls to avoid the sentimental novels she'd been forced to read growing up, but to read history the Bible, and more serious literature. Mary Wollstonecraft complimented it as one of the only works for young women that deserved praise. It became a staple of young girls' education in the late 18th and 19th century. And at that time, Mrs Chapone was a household name. She was also an influence on many of the great 19th century women writers we know today. We're familiar with Mrs Beaton as a female cookery book writer, but Helen Glass was the first to publish in the 1700s. Frances Burney was a novelist, diarist and playwright. In all, she wrote four novels, eight plays, one biography and 25 volumes of journals and letters. She influenced such writers as Jane Austen and Thackeray. Mary Wollstonecraft was an English writer, philosopher and advocate of women's rights. Rather overlooked until recently, she is now regarded as one of the founding feminist philosophers and is often cited as an important influence. She argues that women are not naturally inferior to men, but appear only so because they lack education. She suggests that both men and women should be treated as rational beings and imagines a social order founded on reason. As I said, she was a fan of Mrs Chapone's work. She died 11 days after giving birth to her second daughter, Mary, who is well known as the author of Frankenstein. There's a lot of things where different people are connected in, in different subjects. Now, this... Person obtained a medical degree and served in many parts of the British Empire, rising to being in charge of military hospitals, which was the second highest medical office in the British Army. When Barry died, it was found that he was actually a female. He was born in 1769 and brought up as a girl. He wanted to go into medicine, but at that time, no chance. So he pretended to be a man to get, first of all, the education and then the career, which would have been denied him as a woman. It was to be a long time before women could qualify as doctors. Mary Somerville, who was born in 1780, she studied mathematics and astronomy, being mainly taught at home and also self-taught, one of the ones looking in the library, no doubt. And in 1835, she was elected as one of the first honorary members of the Royal Astronomical Society, Ada Lovelace, born in 1815. She was a daughter of Lord Byron and is now considered to be the first computer programmer. At her mother's insistence, tutors taught her mathematics and science. Such challenging subjects were not usual for women of the time. Right, moving on, we're going to look at the Georgian period as a whole. This is mainly the upper classes and aristocracy, I have to say. More was definitely more. The consumer society was beginning with more choice from imports as a result of the East India Company and the expansion of the British Empire. Elaborate gowns, extreme hair and makeup were all the rage. It was still fashionable for the skin to be very white. And women still used a lead-based product called Ceruse, like that used in the Elizabethan age. But by then they knew it was poisonous, which I find shocking. Personal possessions at that time would have been stored in an item called a pocket. They're now very rare, and I've only seen them in museums. They often came in pairs and were worn by all classes, although they would have been in differing quality. They were tied around the waist, sometimes under aprons, but more often between the layers of petticoats and the top layer of the skirt. They were accessed through openings in the sides of the skirts. They'd contain small items, such as the small purse and perhaps a vinaigrette against unpleasant smells. The bag in which an upper-class Georgian lady would carry her dainty needlework. Plain sewing would be done by servants, but it was perfectly acceptable for the ladies to carry out fine work when in company. They'd take such work with them when visiting friends. The bag itself would likely to have been made by the user herself, or made by a friend as a gift. During the late 18th century, most of the upper classes and aristocracy still lived in the country. But many of the men were either elected MPs or in the House of Lords. So when Parliament was in session, they travelled up to London. They either stayed in their townhouse or rented one, and wives and families would often accompany them, and events were put on to entertain them. George Third held a ball in honour of Queen Charlotte's birthday in 1870, and young unmarried daughters of these families were presented to the Queen... And this is how the London season developed, and with the debutants coming out and being approved, etc., that went on right up to the beginning of the current Queen's reign and grew to include non-London venues such as Ascot and Henley. After this, in the part of the Georgian era known as the Regency, there was a radical change in dress design The waist rose and the skirt narrowed to give a completely different silhouette. The dresses were often made of light semi-sheer cotton fabric and the body was less constricted. This is the sort of style we're familiar with from Jane Austen dramas etc and represents a time when a distinctly English style started to appear rather than following the French all the time influences were classical greek and egyptian places having been recently ancient things discovered now having a narrow silhouette meant that a bulky pocket under the dress would spoil <coughs> the line so they were abandoned some started using their work bags to carry their possessions these started to change other styles and materials were used slightly later and long Elaborate tassels were very popular. I think that it's amazing that such delicate items have survived. The changes in fashion caught the attention of cartoonists Gilray and others, and the carrying of items in the hand, ridiculous and rather risque, as what was previously hidden under the skirt was now in plain view. The item became known as a reticule, and was the origin of what we ladies now use. But the use of bags by men goes back much further. Now, thinking about education, for girls in upper-class families generally took a step back at this time and was viewed as something to help a girl in her future role as wife and mother and to run her household. Middle-class girls were mainly taught by mothers and would sometimes be taught to run their family businesses. Basic education for girls, and indeed boys, from working-class families, was usually provided in dame or charity schools, if at all, and was very limited. Boys and girls may have been taught reading and perhaps some arithmetics, and boys possibly taught to write, but not usually girls. They were often instructed in handiwork, such as knitting and sewing. In 1833, Parliament authorised sums of money to be provided for the construction of schools for the poor children of England and Wales, but actually not very much was done at this time. Now, back to what was happening on the land and in the towns. England utilised an open field system... This worked well because it suited what was needed by society at the time. But this changed with advances in methods and equipment, better infrastructure and a requirement for greater productivity as the population rose. The Enclosures Act removed much common land and meant that many villagers were no longer able to be self-sufficient. Some small farmers lost their land. For all of these people, it meant working for wages outside the home and or bringing work into the home for wages. This was often an extension of what they were already doing and led to the establishment of cottage industries. Guild rules didn't apply in the countryside and entrepreneurs with capital developed a network of people mainly women, who spun and wove at home. He provided their raw materials, perhaps their loom, and, of course, took a big share of the profits. This still was often not sufficient and initiated the start of the migration to the towns in an attempt to escape poverty. More about this later. Harnessing first water for the first cotton factory in 1771 and steam in 1790, and the development of the canal system, meant the possibility of manufacture on a grand scale started to take off, and it developed through the Victorian period. Work in the textile industry, for example, we saw had previously been a cottage industry, but the machines being developed meant workers needed to be grouped in big buildings. The Industrial Revolution was certainly good for the country, but not for everyone. The very rich got richer, as did those owning the new factories. They were able to build huge new mansions filled with expensive items. The ladies and girls of all these groups had more comfortable lives, but still not very much freedom. There was an expansion of the middle class, working as merchants, shopkeepers and accountants, and the women and girls in these households would have had access to a higher standard of living, and probably servants for the first time. The same could not be said for the poor. More families were being forced from the farms in an attempt to escape poverty and sought work in these factories. Changes in the way the poor were helped in the parishes led to the poor laws and the horrors of the workhouses where families were separated. Many of the lowest and most dangerous jobs were done by women and young girls. The factories were extremely noisy and hot and the cotton mills were full of dust but health and safety was not an issue then. The cities were overcrowded as families seeking jobs swarmed into them and dreadful slums developed. The food available was often very poor as it had to come long distances and transport was slow until the railway system was developed. Disease was rife. Larger numbers of women and young girls were in service as the requirement for staff rose as these new estates were built. Smaller establishments of the middle classes also required help as housework was very arduous without the appliances we know today. Most lived in and only had very limited time off. In a large establishment there would be many servants, as in the fictional Downton Abbey, And each had to know their place as there was a strict hierarchy with the housekeeper being head of the female staff. Girls often started at a very young age and were recommended by a relative or hired from the country at so-called mop fairs. They often had to provide their own uniform. Some servants would leave service after a few years. Others would stay with one family for many years working up through the ranks and yet others would move from one placement to another to achieve better positions. When a servant left employment, they were asked for what was known as a character, what we now call a reference. Being dismissed without one was catastrophic. There were no pensions, of course, and wages, even for those at the top of their profession, were generally quite low. However, food and board was included so they could save part of their wages and there were perks, so some of them didn't do too badly. Young children of the family were often largely brought up by nannies and they were often well looked after when they were too old to work. Most female staff lived in rooms in the attic. This light would be largely unchanged during the whole of the 19th century but hopefully by the 1880s some of the young girls would have been at school. Ladies' maids often slept near their mistress in a separate small room needing to be on hand for all requirements. They also had perks such as discarded clothing. Governesses were often from a higher but more impoverished class and could feel rather isolated as neither family nor servant. Education for rich and poor girls continued in a similar vein into the mid-19th century. But before we get to the Victorian age, there are a few things about women's suffrage to mention, because there were a few backward steps. Some women with property, usually widows, were allowed to vote in elections. But in a backward step, the Great Reform Act excluded women from the electorate by defining voters as male persons. And landowning women could also vote in local council elections until the right to vote was restricted to men only in 1835. But alongside this, Mary Smith from Yorkshire petitioned Henry Hunt MP... I remember the Peterloo Massacre, saying she and other Spencers should have a voice in the election of members of Parliament. And on the 3rd of August 1832, this became the very first women's suffrage petition to be presented to Parliament. Needless to say, it was ignored. So the Victorian Age. Particularly the second half and up to World War I is an era with many changes for everyone and in particular for the women and girls. Rather than considering everything chronologically, I'm going to follow through on different themes, although some of the women are involved in more than one sphere. First we'll look at the clothing, as it changes yet again back to a tightly Fitted bodice, narrow waist and very full skirt. The lady is supposed to be very demure and natural. Such silhouettes appear several times when women were largely expected to stay at home. Her place is definitely in the sphere of the home, although, as in earlier times, she might well have taken part in charitable work. Gone are the bold cosmetics of the Georgian lady and the elaborate hair. But she's still meant to look beautiful, so we have a bit of a double standard going on, as publications of the time contained recipes for various skin products. And as adverts started appearing towards the end of the century, there were numerous ads for items to purchase, for example, skin cream, hair restorer, and various fashions. Some personal possessions that our Victorian middle or upper class lady may have owned. Long gloves with buttons that were done using a button hook. A tiny aid memoir, manicure items and a tiny corkscrew. Perfume bottles were often caught. So this was for that and not for her to have a crafty tipple. She may have done that as well, who knows. We have a fan and also a tortoiseshell card case. It had become the fashion to present a visiting card, a parasol to protect the skin from sun. This folds in the middle, so the lady can get into a carriage with it. Many new materials and styles of objects became available as things were brought in from different countries. Now, with the development of the steam train for passenger use in the 1840s, people could go on day or longer trips by train, One Samuel Parkinson asked a luggage maker, J.H. Cave, incidentally a woman, to make a range of stout luggage to carry their possessions on such trips. He thought that the reticule carried by his wife was too delicate and small for the needs of the journey and asked for a smaller version for hand baggage, rather like a hold-all but better than the carpet bags then available. The item and the name would develop into the handbag today, but took some time to catch on. The term wasn't widely unused until the early 20th century, however. Now, an interesting aside. We all know of a famous handbag and the baby within it, but it hadn't occurred to me that the name and item were fairly new at the time. The importance of being earnest is said to be set Between 1870 and 1900, Ernest is, say, early 30s, so the bag was lost by Miss Prism not that long after things were first available. Apparently, he didn't coin the phrase, but his play is the third use of handbag in the Oxford Dictionary. From the middle of the century, sport as an organised and competitive activity started to be a part of some women's lives. Specific outfits were developed that allowed more movement but would still be considered very restrictive today. Another Victorian sport that Victorian women took up was cycling. Cycling in everyday dress was potentially dangerous as long skirts would get caught in the wheels. We need to look to an American lady who gave her name to an outfit of loose-fitting trousers gathered at the ankles and a shorter covering skirt, namely bloomers. These caused something of an uproar among gentlemen. The Rational Dress Society was founded in 1881 in London. It protested against the introduction of any fashion in dress that either deformed the figure, impeded the movements of the body, or in any way tended to injure the health. It sold boneless stays and said no women should have to weigh more than seven pounds of underwear. (laughs) They promoted a tailor-made suit of skirt and jacket that were easily mass-produced using recently introduced sewing machines. They were warm, strong and hard-wearing. The style filtered down from the upper classes to the working classes. They were considered to be an ideal garment for the new woman who wanted to be taken more seriously, have better education and gain the vote. They suited women who were opting to work in department stores or as office workers, etc., Nowadays, if we ladies have been out from our home for some hours, shopping perhaps, and meeting friends for a coffee, we know that there will be facilities for us to use when necessary. Not so for our Victorian lady. There were restrooms and there were powder rooms, but these were for doing just that and didn't actually contain a toilet. Trips out, therefore, needed to be carefully planned. We've discussed the Crystal Palace exhibition several times previously. This time, it's the first public flushing toilet exhibited in this exhibition that we're interested in. Public lavatories were open the previous year, but the majority were for gentlemen only. So it was still difficult for the ladies, and this is often termed the urinary leash. For obvious reasons. This led to the formation of the Ladies Sanitary Association, who campaigned for more facilities, which were eventually provided. Lack of suitable facilities for ladies in factories and other workplaces has been used by employers a number of occasions. Mr Selfridge. When he opened his store in 1909, he saw that if you could keep people in the shop for a long time, they would spend money. So he had his goods displayed attractively to catch the eye rather than being shut away. He provided a tea room and, most importantly, toilet facilities. The beginning of ladies at lunch, perhaps. Right, back to something more serious, education. And this is where things really get going. But some doctors seriously believed that there were limitations to a woman's brain and that too much studying would detract from her fertility. (laughs) It wasn't till the 1860s that the Taunton Commission said that men and women had the same mental capacity. Think how long ago that Mrs Chapone and Mary Wolfenthoff were saying that. In the second half of the century, women outnumbered men and it was realised that not all would get married, more would need to earn their living and therefore they did need more education. First thing was in 43 when training for governesses was introduced which improved the level of education they could give. Boarding schools and grammar schools had long been available to teach the boys whose parents could afford them, but girls' equivalents started opening. Cheltenham's Ladies College in 1853, with Rodine two years later. In many cases, such schools were founded by wealthy women who believed passionately that their fellows deserved an education, This education included science and mathematics. The National Union for Improving the Education of Women started in 1871, and by 1900 there were more than 30 fee-paying boarding schools. Opportunities for girls from working-class families were still pretty limited. In 1880, there was an Education Act making it compulsory for all children between 5 and 10, with government funding available. But this still wasn't necessarily adhered to, and many poor girls were stopped from attending by their families who needed their wages. The upper limit rose a number of times to 14 in 1918, and by then attendance was much more strictly controlled. The programme I watched last week said that to start with boys and girls were taught the same subject but within a few years girls started taking more in domestic science and needlework. It was talking about a particular school and I can't find out if it was widespread. Factory Acts would have reduced child labour so more children would have been able to attend. In 1918, standard examinations were introduced with the school certificate in age 16 and higher schools at 18. But secondary education would have all been fee-paying until 1944, although scholarships were available for the brighter ones. Now, some of these young women who went to boarding school were keen to enter further education and professions... Women had been allowed to attend university lectures, but weren't allowed to sit examinations. In June 1868, the University of London Senate voted to admit women to sit the general examination, so becoming the world's first university to do so. The first nine candidates took their exams in 1869, and was sometimes known as the London Nine. Those passing were initially awarded a certificate of proficiency, which was changed to being called a degree ten years later. And they went on to be active in fields such as education, women's suffrage, prison reform and law, so they made good use of their degrees. A number of women wanted to become doctors, but there were two hurdles to overcome – First, to find a medical school to accept them, and second, to get their name on the medical register. The first person to do this, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, but she did it by using a loophole that was closed after her. Unable to be accepted for medicine, she enrolled as a nursing student at the Middlesex Hospital and started going to classes intended for men. Her male classmates complained and she was banned. She then attended apothecary lectures and in 1865 passed its examinations, earning her the right to have her name on the register. She helped found the London School of Medicine for women in 1874 and in 1883 was appointed dean and oversaw its expansion as well as working in other spheres. Elizabeth Blackwell. She went to America and was the first woman to qualify anywhere with a medical degree. With this qualification, she was put on the register in 1859. Next come the so called Edinburgh Seven, led by Sophia Jex Blakes. They had to arrange their own tuition and started studying in 1869, but they weren't allowed to finish and, and graduate. Some did go abroad for their qualification. However, their campaign did attract attention, eventually resulting in legislation in 1877 that women could study and graduate. The University of Edinburgh allowed women to graduate in 1894 and the first doctors graduated in 96. They still had to organise their own tuition, however. I can't find the name of the first woman doctor to graduate, but a very notable female doctor is Louisa Aldrich-Blake. She enrolled at the London School of Medicine and did her bachelor degree and then her master of surgery degree and was the first British woman to do this. She eventually became its dean. She also set up hospitals to treat soldiers in World War I, in the eastern battlefields, and her example inspired other women to enter medical school. A number of colleges were set up for women in Oxford and Cambridge, but actual degrees for women weren't awarded in Oxford until the 1920s, and Cambridge was even later. Women were entering other fields of work. Edith Smith, the first female police officer with powers of arrest, Others, like Elizabeth Fry and Florence Nightingale, are well known for their work and there are lots more, but not time. A wider range of work choices became available for those who probably have gone into service. Typing, working in department stores, tea rooms. Still hard work, but greater freedom. The last area to look at before World War I breaks out is women's suffrage and some other changes to women's rights. The story starts, as mentioned, in 1832 with setbacks, but really gets going in 1866, where, first of all, Manchester National Society for Women's Suffrage is formed, followed by many others. The right to vote in local elections was restored in 1869 to single women in properties that paid tax. And in 1870, married women get a step closer to independence as they are for the first time allowed to keep their wages and to own property in their own right. In the same year, women could be elected to boards dealing with the poor law and the elementary education. In 1894, both married and single women could not only vote... These are still in a house that pays property tax, but they can actually be elected onto urban and rural councils and school boards. Then we've got the suffragists and the suffragettes. The former, in 1897... The National Union of Women's Suffrage Associations, led by Millicent Fawcett, which was peaceful campaigns and petitions, and then the Suffragettes, the WSPU, Women's, British Women's Social and Political Union, founded by Emmeline Pankhurst in 1903. And this engaged in direct action and civil obedience, as we know. Their colours were purple for justice, white for purity and green for hope. Not time to dwell on all they did or how they were treated, a talk in itself. But you may be interested to know that Mr Selfridge was a supporter. He advertised in their paper and designed clothes for the women to wear at their demonstrations. In return, his windows weren't broken. Famous firm Mappin and Webb, the London Jewellers, issued a catalogue of suffragette jewellery in 1908. And in the same year, there was a new law introduced to limit the size of hat pins. Fearing that the suffragette women would use them as a weapon, it specified that a hat <coughs> pin should be nine inches from end to end. I still think that could do quite a lot of damage. Right, then, of course, we've got the start of First World War. The WSPU paused their campaign and focused their energies on the war effort. And they campaigned for the right to serve, achieved in 1915. Some took on jobs left vacant by brothers or husbands. Then the Board of Trade ordered a National Register of Women prepared to do war work, and recruiting stations were set up. Many worked in munition and other factories. Again, lack of suitable toilets was a problem. Others joined the land army or these other services. Towards the end of the war, wrens and raff were formed. Many were from wealthy families whose daughters had not had a real job before. Large stately homes were often used as hospitals and the families would get involved. Some went overseas, for example, Edith Cavell trained as a nurse and went to Belgium, running a training hospital as a member of the Red Cross. However, she also used the clinic to help Allied soldiers escape back to safety and she was betrayed and later shot. An interesting story about what one young woman called Miss P did locally. she worked in a church hall called St. Nick's in the Millmead area of Guildford. so the building's still there. I've seen it, and I found reference to it being used as a theatre school of music, and now its swanky apartments. It was used in World War I used in connection with getting more men into the army. And at the end of the war, it was briefly part of the Ministry of Labour. I'll just read out one of the entries. Goodbye, Miss P, the time is rife. For you, for someone else to type. No more writing, pass to you. No more region, Billy do. No more giving, shirkers, shocks. No more hunts for missing docks. It all helped win this war, you know. And so good luck, where'er you go, May your life be free from worry, and don't forget MNS Surrey. <laughs> After the war ended, some men came back and went to their old jobs. Many had died or died later of Spanish flu, and yet more came back, damaged mentally or physically. Women had lost husbands and men they were betrothed to or had to look after damaged loved ones. Many unmarried ladies would never find a husband now, so needed to support themselves. And many having experienced work outside the home didn't want to go back. Clothing had become less constrictive. The uniforms had shorter, more practical skirts. And single girls previously in service were much less keen on doing this, so the big estates and houses were increasingly difficult to starve. The next phase of suffrage plays out now, with women over 30 getting the vote in 1918. Now, it's said that choice of the higher age for men was said by some to stop there being more women voters than men I don't know whether that's true or not in the same year the Parliament Qualification Act is passed allowing women to stand for Parliament there was going to be an election held on the 14th of December which is an amazingly short time for women to get ready to stand and 17 did. There was another election in 1919 and Nancy Astor was elected and did take up her seat. In 1928, all women over 21 were finally allowed to vote the same as men. Margaret Grace Bondfield was an MP, trade unionist, and women's rights activist. She became the first female cabinet minister when she was appointed Minister of Labour in the Labour government of 1929. The flappers women generally had a lot more freedom and cast off the restrictive garments and elaborate hairstyles worn previously and went back to wearing more obvious makeup they were heavily influenced by Hollywood stars such as Clara bow the waistline dropped and eventually disappeared altogether hemlines rose and a more boyish figure was popular Hair was often cut into a stylish bob or a more severe-eaten crop. A lot of ladies had sadly emulated men and taken up smoking, and had cigarette cases and holders. Until the end of the previous century, there'd been no real distinction between bags for day or evening. But as women were out and about more at work, they mainly used leather bags for day, clutches being popular. The fashion for tanned rather than pale skin started at this time. It's said that Coco Chanel was responsible as she got sunburnt once on a boat. Perhaps something else that would have been better avoided. The issues of equal pay for equal work continued. Next we go into the 30s where there's a clinging bias cut dresses were popular. Hair was longer, curves returned and the women were largely again expected to stay at home, often in the newly constructed suburbia. They were also corseted again. We do go backwards and forwards. Bags for evening were more often clutch shaped, pale colours at first, but then with black becoming popular and that's largely true today. At the beginning of the decade, large families were still the norm, with pregnancy and childbirth being dangerous still. But by the end of the decade, the Family Planning Association had been set up and family (coughs) size could be controlled. The Women's League of Health and Beauty was also formed at this time for those who wanted to take control of their health and to exercise. Alongside all this, there was, of course, the Great Depression, and this caused huge poverty in all classes. And then, all too soon, we're at war again. Women are again left on their own, and those living in large cities are often without their children as they're evacuated. Many, including my grandparents in Bermondsey, are bombed out. Women have to deal with shortages of everything. Marguerite Patton, known as the Queen of Russian Book Cuisine, was a home economist who worked in the advice division of the Ministry of Food. This was created in 1939 to oversee food distribution. She showed people how to make a satisfying meal out of whatever was available. I believe she was related to my f- former mother-in-law, Large estates are once again requisitioned for hospitals. Many girls volunteer to do war work and and reading memoirs, some of these look back fondly at this time. Small girls and boys find that they're suddenly removed from their families and sent off to safer places to stay with people they don't know. For some, this was a terrible experience. As the war continued and more men were conscripted, an act was passed in 1941 introducing conscription for women aged 20 to 30 and widows without children. Here are some of the areas into which women volunteered or were later conscripted. Others were invited to crack codes at Bletchley or work behind enemy lines with the resistance. They were taught to keep a low profile, doing things in a French way. For example, tucking a hanky in a sleeve could betray one, as it's apparently an English habit. This was an era of make-do and mend. Clothing was on ration and had to adhere to strict rules on how much fabric was used. Fashions were often inspired by military uniforms. Women often wore trousers or overall for their war work and enjoyed the freedom it gave them. Stockings were very difficult to get hold of and leather became unavailable for handbags. So women improvised using anything available. After the war ended, rationing got worse and conditions were very bad, many families having lost their main breadwinner and there was a chronic housing shortage after all the bombings many women were unhappy to leave jobs they'd enjoyed. In 1946 children's allowance was introduced but only for second and subsequent children and this has been construed by some as an incentive to keep women at home to have lots of children, possibly to replenish the workforce. The issue of equal pay was raised again and continued to be, most jobs were only available to unmarried women but the marriage ban was lifted in 46. So into this post-war era Dior introduced his new look which involved yards of material and a new silhouette of tight bodice, narrow waist and full skirts all of which meant a return to heavy corsets. Sounds familiar? Apart from the length, not unlike the Victorian shape when women were meant to stay at home and raise children. Parallels can be drawn, as there was an effort to contain women again within the home for them to be domestic goddesses again, albeit with electrical appliances to make their life easier. Ads showed such women dressed in their finest, yielding, say, a vacuum cleaner, this seemed a backward step, and many criticised Dior for taking away women's newly attained independence. They said, by lacing them up in corsets and making them wear long skirts again. Others loved the new fashions. This would continue into the 50s. The rise of the teenager started at around this time. There'd be another major change in the 60s with the mini. This was again a much freer period for women, and many single girls started to live independently in bedsits and flats with other girls. After this, we had the maxi midi and power dressing in the 80s. Since then, it's been much less well-defined with lots of choice available and trousers acceptable for women almost everywhere. Women continued to work in different fields and there were many women doing important scientific work such as Rosalind Franklin with her work on the DNA double helix structure. This was largely unrecognized during her life, Watson and Crick being the names we know. Dorothy Hodgson was the first woman Nobel Prize winner in science working from the 1930s using crystallography to determine the structure of penicillin, which was vital for World War II. Again, her name's not readily recognised. I'm sure there's lots more like her. Just to finish off, I'm going to see how things have changed, where we are now. So education went up to 15 in 1944, with children going to secondary school governed by their 11 plus results, and this education was free. You had grammar schools, secondary, moderns and technical. Secondary modern schools, there was more of a difference in the subjects that girls and boys took. And to start with, few of either sex were taking examination. The baby-booner generation was particularly affected from 1957 to 70 because grammar school places hadn't been sufficiently increased to accommodate the large bulge of student numbers entering secondary schools. As a result, marks required to pass the 11-plus rows, and many students who would in earlier years have been streamed into grammar schools instead went to secondary modern. Some did start encouraging pupils to stay on till 16 and take O-levels, or the newly introduced CSEs. And it was seen that students, actually, who took the O-levels there were receiving results comparable to some of the ones in the grammar schools. I actually went to a secondary modern school right in the middle of that time, 65. I was at the top of that school and later transferred to a grammar school for A-levels. I was, however, somewhat restricted as the choice of O-levels was more limited than it would have been in a grammar school. Later, we had the comprehensive system and various things. Right, so then pay. Civil service brought in equal pay in 61, with everything else in 1970, which was partly brought about by the women machinist at the Ford car plant in Dagenham, who went on strike. However, As we know, women still tended to be in lower pay scales with less chance of rising to the top. There were glass ceilings at the very least. Now they can enter almost all professions. Things are gradually improving, but the pay gap is not a thing of the past. We had various pieces of maternity legislation and maternity pay that helped with women who wanted to work. With regard to politics, we have had various female cabinet ministers and two female prime ministers and currently about 30% of councillors and MPs are female. The ex-wind farm engineer and now a Green Party councillor in Bristol. She's been noted for her lead role in bringing about Bristol City Council's declaration of a climate emergency in 2018. This was the first in Europe. She was very recently elected as joint leader of the Green Party of England and Wales. Now there's a local connection here as she was educated in Calthorpe Park School in Fleet and then Farnborough Sixth Form College before going to Durham. There's a personal one as well. Her name is Carla Denyer and I am her proud mum. And that is your lot. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen.
0: This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.